0: Hi everyone, welcome to the Desi Crime Podcast. I'm Aryan, your host for this episode.
1: And I'm Ishwarya.
0: Before we start the case for today, we want all of you to go over to our Patreon. You thought I was going to say Patreon. Not this time. I want all of you to go over to our YouTube channel, the Desi Crime YouTube channel, and subscribe. It's free. See, we're not even asking for your money. We have videos dropping every Wednesday evening at 5.30pm India time, beginning October 5th. All the cases on our podcast that you loved, get ready to experience them in a whole new way. So go subscribe to the AC Crime YouTube channel. We'd also like to thank our newest patrons, Lindsay Liu, Mockingbird, Catherine Collins, Sakshi Kauria, and Devanshi Mishra. Your contributions go a long way in running this podcast, and we're truly grateful. My mother made my sister strip in the bathroom. My mother thinks I'm impotent. She wanted to see me develop a relationship. This is why she used to send a maidservant to my room to excite me. These words were scribbled in some cursive writing books originally intended for kindergartners. The inscriptions in there were well beyond the PG-13 category and ironically juxtaposed by the colourful books in which they were found. The mother in question is Artide, Day, Parthode's mother. Everything that has happened up until now at house number 3 on Robinson Street can be traced back decades and can be traced back to one person. Aarti. What seemed on the surface like a psychopath on the loose turns out to be a way more complicated story. Who killed Debjani? Where is Aarti? And what happened to Partho? Day. Welcome to the second part of the Kolkata House of Murders.
1: So I'm sure you all know by now, at least those of you that follow us on our Instagram, that our Desi Crime YouTube is about to launch. And I'm so incredibly excited for you to see what we've come up with. Our first episode dropping October 5th is the Kohistan Video Murders, which honestly, according to me, is my favorite episode that we've covered on the podcast so far. So I'm so excited for you to see this completely new format of your favorite stories.
0: Right. And one of the things that excites me a lot is that this video will premiere it'll premiere at 5:30 in the evening and so you guys can literally watch it with us we will be in the chat active and would love to have you there and so go subscribe hit the notifications the whole spiel you know you've heard youtubers say it in the past and i guess we're <laughs> going to say it now for you so eshwara from the looks of it and all the dms we've been getting our listeners have had a hard time this past week with the pent-up anxiety of the cliffhanger so remind me where did i leave us off
1: Okay, so when the cops extracted whatever little information they could from Partho, their primary source of understanding this case became house number three itself. Therein, they discovered notes, which to me was the weirdest part of the last episode is that these people living under the same roof didn't communicate verbally. They wrote each other notes as a family. Then they found drawings made by Partho, but of a caliber that matched a first grader. But the most easy and I think important discovery were the diaries.
0: Yeah, I'd call them ad hoc DIY diaries (laughs) because when we want to start journaling, folks my age go for that, you know, the leather top hardcover journal with papyrus-like pages, you know, the expensive ones and nobles kind of jazz, exactly. But Bartho made do with whatever was at his disposal, which just so happened to be cursive writing books. But what was in those books slash diaries, Aishwarya?
1: That's when you introduced us to Aarti De, Partho and Debjani's mother and Aurobindo's wife. And what Partho wrote about his mother wasn't normal, to say the least. So Aran, I'm wondering, and I'm sure our listeners are wondering this as well, who exactly is Aarti? We have no background on this woman. Where is she? What is her relationship to Debjani's skeletal remains?
0: The diaries were discovered in June 2015. But what was discovered inside the diaries forces us to dial our clocks back. Back all the way to 1968, the year when a loving couple living in Bangalore welcomed into their lives a new member of their family, a new member of the Day family, a little baby girl. Devjani Day was born to Aurobindo Day and Arthi Day. Now, it's not easy to raise a family, but Orbindo and Aarti did their best. Aarti made it a point to have a tight family structure. But the extent of how tightly knit she wanted this family to be wouldn't be fully understood until they had their next child, an innocent little baby boy. They named him Partho. Partho Day. Once Partho entered their lives, and this family unit of three became a family unit of four, inklings of something arise, something not right could be sensed. In her efforts to keep the family closely knit, Aarti did not allow her kids to play with other kids. When the kids were young, they used to play Scrabble together indoors and go to school together. But rarely would you find them outside the house, in their own friend circles, socialising with different people. And on its surface, this doesn't seem evil, and I don't think it is evil. But I would say it is a unique form of parenting. The thing is, when exclusively viewed, we don't realise the full picture. Arti's unique parenting style was going to dictate what Partho and Devjani became as adults. And not allowing kids to socialise with other kids and forcing them to spend an overwhelming amount of time together breeds all kinds of attachment issues which fosters and metastasizes into bigger issues as the child grows up. And as you will come to find out, that is exactly what happened. We learn from Partho's diaries what happened in the Day family as the kids grew up. When human beings are young, that is when we are kids and haven't yet hit puberty, spending an overwhelming time with your siblings and kids of the same gender, it's not an issue. But with changing hormones and developing bodies, teenagers need to meet people other than their own siblings. Socialization at this point is absolutely crucial for healthy psychological development. For whatever skewed reason Aarti had, she didn't let her kids do so. And what transpired hereon sets the stage for what was discovered on June 11th, 2015. Quote, My sister was growing old, and she was asserting her independence. My mother was jealous of her. We went on vacation, where my mother made her strip in the bathroom. End quote. You see, as Debjani got older, her proximity to her younger brother became a breaking point for their mom, Aarti. Aarti was, quote, jealous of how close her daughter was with her son, and she envied that. She too wanted to be close to her son in that way. This jealousy from your own daughter, in my opinion, displays the psychological issues Aarti herself was dealing with. But of course, back in the 70s and 80s, There was no therapy and so I have no official diagnosis to share with all of you. But if I were to speculate, Aarti was projecting her insecurities onto her children. And it's not like Aarti was just projecting them onto Devjani. Parthu too faced the brunt of this. For whatever reason, Aarti assumed her son was impotent. Impotent means that he did not have the ability to reproduce. Now, I have a theory for this, and it's not to play a blame game, but merely an attempt to understand the causal relationship. The fact that Partho was always clustered with his sister and sister only, I think he adopted his sister's mannerisms. You see, Partho grew up with an older sister, and so he resembled more closely to the societal female archetype rather than the male archetype. This is evinced in Partho's voice tone and temperament. He has what would one call effeminate characteristics. This is not to say he's gay or impotent, but I have a feeling that Partho's mother assumed that just because her son didn't act like stereotypical teenage boys, he was impotent. But the question arises, if Aarti didn't let her son interact with other girls his age, How is he ever supposed to learn how to talk to girls? He naturally, inevitably became a shy kid. And it's preposterous in my opinion to associate shyness with impotency. But I guess for a, you know, orthodox Christian household like the day household, it's easier to think your son is impotent than it is to think he's gay. From Parthos' diaries we learn that his mother went to crazy extremes to reverse her child's perceived impotency. Quote, my mother thinks I'm impotent. She wanted to see me develop a relationship. This is why she used to send a maidservant in my room to excite me. End quote. Now, if this is true, this is a form of sexual assault done to a child by his own mother. But if you thought, this is all going too far, Aryan, stop, it's too weird. Well, it gets even weirder. And the first time in the story when the weirdness enters the haunting spiritual realm is in 1988 when Partho's paternal grandfather so Orbindo's dad passed away. His name was Godador Day. When Godador Day passed away, how this family responded to that tragedy was quite different from how most normal families would. You know, up until now, I told you guys about arthi's weird and sometimes outright creepy behaviors, but hold on, Orbindo himself is not so innocent. So, Orbindo's dad, Gododorde, was married to a woman named Shanti. Him and Shanti had two kids, Orbindo and his brother, Arun. In 1988, when Gododorde died, Orbindo refused to go to his own father's funeral. Now, you might wonder, it's normal for kids to that hate their parents, to not visit their parents' funeral. It's sad, but it's not unheard of. It happens. But what did I tell you at the beginning of the previous episode? This is not the story of a family that doesn't love each other. It's a story of a family that loves each other too much. Orbindo loved his father, and that's precisely why he didn't go. Orbindo believed that death is not real. That the physical cessation of one's body isn't the end of one's spiritual life. Therefore, he did not attend his father's funeral in protest to the formal declaration that Gododor Day is dead. To Orbindo, he was still alive. And so it was futile to visit his funerals. Funerals are for dead people, after all. And Orbindo refused to believe his father was dead. His brother Arun and his mother Shanti did not share Orbindo's spiritual convictions. They were normal people with normal notions of death. Arun and Shanti attended Gautador's funeral and the fact that Orbindo did not caused a major rift in the families. So you had Shanti and Arun on one side and Orbindo and his family on the other.
1: So let me know if I got this family tree down right. Shanti and Gautador, they have two children, Arun and Orbindo. Orbindo marries Aarti and they have two kids, Partho and Devjani. And the latter two love each other and their parents, but don't have a good relationship with their grandmother Shanti and their uncle Arun.
0: That is exactly right, Ashwara. So now, the patriarch of the Day family is dead. But he did leave behind one thing which is central to the story. So central that it is in fact where the story took place. House number three on Robinson Street. That house was the Day's ancestral house. Gododor Day had purchased this house sometime in the 1930s or 1940s, but certainly in the pre-independence era, from a British man named Debs. At least if you look into Calcutta's archival records, that's the name to which this house was originally registered. Now, of course, Gododor couldn't have guessed it in 1930, but the locality where he bought his house had become the most posh locality in Calcutta in the post-independence era. So you can only imagine how valuable that piece of land was. And no matter how spiritual you are, money triumphs all, even Aurobindo. So after his father's untimely demise in 1988, Aurobindo left Bangalore in 1989 and set up shop as director of the Calcutta headquartered Alfred Herbert Limited, which manufactured industrial equipment. The intention was clear as day. The million dollar property was now in dispute between the two brothers, Arun and Orbindo. The two did not like each other and if Orbindo didn't move back to Kolkata, he knew his brother could sneak his way into his share. The floors and the apartments were divided among the brothers and other family members. The property dispute haunted the family for years and years to come. In fact, it haunted the days until Orbindo finally committed suicide in 2015. Part of Orbindo's reason for his suicide was the stress that the property had caused him. House number three wasn't cursed in 2015. It was probably cursed ever since it exchanged hands from a white man's to a brown man's. Up until recently, when the house was finally locked and vacated, Arun and Orbindo hired security guards for rupees 40,000 a month just to make sure that neither brother steps into the other brother's floor. When the Day family moved to Kolkata in 1989, they didn't immediately get access to house number 3. Arun had disputed the property, so for technical and legal reasons, the Day's lived in Salt Lake in Kolkata for 5 years until finally moving to the place where this all began in 1994, back into house number 3. But it's not like the move-in meant that the property dispute diminished. If anything, it worsened. To give an example, when Aarti opened a creche in the ground floor of this house, Arun had it closed down. And in a similar fashion, when Jani started her music school on the ground floor, Arun had that shut down as well. So now do you kind of get the idea of the nature of the family in which Partho grew up? He was just a child when he was being raised by a mother with insane ideas of parenting a father who had insane ideas of spirituality in a family that had insane disputes over property. All this while, Partho had just one person to confide in. His confidant was his sister, Debjani. And the day finally came when the inseparable siblings were forcefully separated. Arti and Orbindo, for whatever reason, had had enough of each other. The couple decided to split up and go their own ways. The only issue was the custody of the children and they came up with an arrangement that might have worked for them but was the most selfish and harmful for the kids. Aarti got Partho or Bindo got Debjani and so the siblings were separated. So for the first decade of a child's life, you forced the poor Partho to have only one real friend his age, his sister. And now because you cannot manage your own marriage, you're taking away from that kid the only person he has ever truly loved. But despite their difficulties, both the kids were bright. They passed high school with flying colours and finally were reunited when Partho got admission into the same college as his sister, the Raja Bazaar Science College. Both Debjani and Partho pursued a B Tech, and the college campus was the only place where they could spend time together. And as you would expect, Partho, now a man, was still the boy who never learned how to socialize. So even in college, friends didn't come to him easily. College is a time when you know you meet new people, date new people, engage in experiences that are coming of age. Partho did what? He spent his time yet again with his sister. In fact, professors at Raj Bazar Science College in later interviews noted that it was always glaringly mystifying as to why the siblings spent an unhealthy amount of time glued to each other. People speculated incest, but nothing was taken seriously. But their ways in life finally parted. Both of them graduated college and entered the real world, the world of jobs. However... Despite getting an engineering degree, Debjani pursued a degree from the Trinity School of Music in London and used her credentials to become a music teacher at the Calcutta Girls High School. Meanwhile, Partho got a job at companies more in tune with his BTEC degree. But it is key to note that in the early phase of his career, Partho kept changing jobs jumping from one job to another. And the reason for that is adjustment issues. That might be a small detail, but it's rather a crucial one because it tells you that even as a full-grown adult, Partho did not have the intrapersonal or emotional skills to navigate life alone. He needed his mom who dictated his entire life ever since he was a kid, who he could meet, whom he could play with. And he needed his sister, his only source of emotional support and his only real friend. Bartho finally settled down at a rather prestigious company, Tata Consultancy Services, and moved abroad. But little did the fully grown boy know that one of the two pillars of his life was soon about to come crashing down. At the cusp of the century, around the 2000s, Aarti Day was diagnosed with breast cancer. And a couple of years after, in 2005, the matriarch of this tightly knit family died. She had so firmly established herself as the pillar to which this family was bolstered that her death caused the family to come crashing down. If you thought the days with all their little problems were still managing by somehow, after their mom passed away, there was not a hint of normalcy left in house number three. For starters, neither Debjani nor Orbindo attended Arthi’s funeral. And you know why, because neither of them believed in death. As for Partho, in 2005, when his mother died, he was still working abroad. In a diary entry I found from around that time, he wrote, quote, Why is it happening to us? Why is everything leaving us? End quote. This was Partho's breaking point. It was the last straw of his temperament, and now he was broken. He had a tough relationship with his mom, yes, but he also loved her. In one entry he wrote about his mom, he wrote that, quote, the enemy tried to take my mother but failed. It lost, the biggest loser. The devil got fucked royally. My mother had a very powerful will. She fought with all her weight. End quote. He left his well paying job in America to come back to India, come back to Kolkata, come back to house number three. Until 2015, for more than a decade, Partho remained unemployed. His mental state wasn't suitable for a career. But it wasn't just Partho's mental state that wasn't suitable for a career. Johnny too was distraught. It was in 2005 when she fully committed herself to spirituality. She got into spirituality full time because her mother had passed away and she wanted answers. She found answers in the likes of the Joyce Mares of the world, you know, the Christian speakers who had cult-like followings across the globe. Now, to each his own, you know, we're all spiritual in our own way and who am I to judge what someone believes is God? But it does get weird when it's not one guru you believe in, but 12 religious gurus from different religions. That's how many, you know, call them saints, teachers, gurus or whatever you want. That's how many Debjani followed on a daily basis. In fact, when the police discovered this house in 2015, they found an unbelievable 20,000 books on spirituality. I don't even know what 20,000 books look like, but 20,000 books on just one subject is a repugnant thought.
1: So, Arun, whenever we've covered a matter of, so to say, over-spirituality, it's always had something to do with fake Hindu gurus, like the Madanapalli case, we did the Burari case. But this case shows us that any faith can lead to this form of over-spirituality, where you're just fundamentally consumed by a religion. It clearly has very little to do with a specific religion, but more to do with a personality type that gravitates towards faith in this specific manner.
0: Aishwarya, after Aarti's death, all forms of verbal communication also broke down. You know, you remember the weird stacks and stacks of handwritten notes found in the house? All that began after their mom died. Around that same time, Debjani quit her job at Calcutta Girls High School and went to Don Bosco School Park Circus where she became a music teacher. Interviews of her students show that Debjani was not an approachable teacher at all. She had an aura of mystery around her. But she wasn't rude either. You know, we, we've we all had that teacher in high school, the one who is super involved with you and wants to know you better as a person. And then there's a teacher who does her job, teaches you, but that's about it. She teaches you and then she goes home and that's her job done. That's what Devjani was as described by her students. In fact, Superintendent John Garayappa notes that only when Orbindo came to collect a form on behalf of his daughter, did any of the co-workers ever meet her family. For the longest while, they did not even know Debjani had a brother. That's how reclusive this family was, and it only became more reclusive, almost like hermits, when Arthi died. Eventually, even Jani became unemployed, quitting her job in 2007 and fully committing to spirituality. The only source of income of the Dave family now was the rent they were getting from the tenants in house number 3. The same house that was a curse was also the only blessings in their lives. The family lived in depravity for years to come. They barely ventured out. In fact, the security guard used to bring them three meals a day. They didn't even cook for themselves. They hardly had anyone over. They barely spoke to each other. It was a dark, dusty and desolate house. And in August of 2014, something happened that broke the camel's back. In August, one of their Labrador's died. And the next month, the other dog died. Her delusional notions of spirituality compelled Devjani to believe that this was due to a curse of some kind and that the only way to remove the curse was to fast. So in September, Devjani began a fast. And I don't mean an intermittent or caloric fast. She stopped eating, period, until God gave her a sign she refused to eat. All this while, she remained in that room which she shared with her adult brother and two rotting dog carcasses. The average person dies after not eating for 45 days. Debjani didn't eat food for around 120 days. But God never gave her a sign, so she never picked up a morsel of bread. On December 29th, two days before New Year's, Debjani heaved her last breath and she was the third corpse in that solemn room. What blows my mind is that due to the lack of verbal communication, Orbindo didn't find out about his own daughter's death until March of that year. So for three months, Orbindo lived with the rotting carcass of his own daughter, never finding out that his son shared a bed with the soon-to-become skeleton. As for Partho, he had lost everything. He was depressed, schizophrenic, and in the most literal sense of the word, insane. Reality to him made no sense. Partho went on to care for his dead sister, even when she was infested with maggots. He did things no normal person would. But you must understand something. He lived a life no normal person does, nor did he have a mind a normal person does. He was a kid in a man's body. When the police picked him up on June 11th, Partho had lost the final member of his family, his father, who had killed himself. Orbindo found out about his dead daughter in March and the stress was too much to tolerate, so he killed himself three months after finding out. Partho wasn't a psychopath. He wasn't a killer. He wasn't the skeleton man. He was a broken kid in need of help. Serious medical help.
1: Iran can such cases of extreme insanity ever be cured? I understand that they can be mitigated to some degree, but usually such people are kept in mental asylums for the rest of their lives. So is there any practical hope for Parthu to get help, and help that translates into him entering society again and being a normal citizen?
0: Ashwara, before reading this case, I would have said absolutely not, no way. Partho was different. Remember the clip I played for you in the last episode? Towards the end of that clip, Partho's only interaction with the media, he said he wanted to go to the missionaries. He just wanted to leave it all and find peace in God. So after receiving medical help at Pavlov Hospital, Partho was actually released from care on October 1st of that very year. In fact, this very day, seven years ago, Partho stepped out of Pavlov and met Father Rodney Borneos. Now, Father Rodney is a priest and a principal for a school in Kolkata. And his description of Partho is different from any that I have shared with you or any that the local media would. Let me play it for you.
2: The first meeting with Partho was totally by chance when the police asked that we be there when they were interrogating him. We were supposed to be a catalyst or a media via which Partho would be able to speak answers to the questions that the authorities had for him. But I remember the moment we met, it was so clear that this was not a person who needed interrogating, but someone who needed understanding. And I think from that point onwards, Partho was no longer someone who was a mystical figure surrounded in the fog of the horror house, but a very real person who could be a very real friend and who had a very real story to tell. After the first meeting, when we continued uh, trying to give support to Partho emotionally or through therapy in whatever way possible, what began to affect all of us was the unnecessary commotion that was being created around the whole story. It was as if people needed a break from all that was around happening around them and only needed to concentrate on this number three Robinson Street the aura of this very rich gentleman who had crores and crores of money who had gone absolutely bonkers, who became a horror figure around whom all these stories were created and webbed none of it was true, none of it was true half of what and more than half of what the media was reporting was absolute lie. We as a society failed to accept that mental illness is something that is treatable.
1: After all this, Aran, I'm still left to wonder, did he engage in necrophilia or cannibalism?
0: I'll be honest, Ashwarya, there's a good chance that he might have. But it's all speculation. There is no hard proof that he did, but in cases like these, the likelihood that he did so is high. I can't give you certainty of any kind though. What I can say, certainly, is that Partho did get better. It wasn't like society immediately accepted him, but he did get better. He sold house number 3 to real estate promoters for 40 crores, bought himself an 11th floor apartment in another area of Kolkata called Vatgunj. He started organising festivals and little by little by little, he tried to acclimatise back into a society that had labelled him a cannibal, murderer and a psychopath. In what is a beautiful testament to how much he had approved, Here's an audio of Partho Day singing at an event for the mentally unwell that he had organised himself. That was Partho's sweet Bengali accent humming away a melodious tune. On 20th February 2017, Partho made a Facebook post of a picture of himself. On 21st February, he shared a quote on his social media. Quote, It's better to light a candle than to curse darkness. You see, he was getting better, wasn't he? Everyone thought so, even Father Rodney did. But a day after sharing that quote I just shared with you, on 22nd February 2017, Father Rodney received a call. Partho wasn't answering his phone nor opening his door. There was smoke coming from his 11th floor apartment in Watkunj. The cops were called. What they found was a scene eerily similar. What they found was a scene eerily similar to one Kolkata had seen in 2015. In the bathroom was a bottle of gasoline, matchsticks, and Partho's charred body beside it. No suicide note, no social media post. Nobody till date knows why Partho killed himself. They all thought he was getting better. But alas, Partho day is no more. In fact, all the days are dead. But what remains is a legacy of mental health. As a society, we can choose to tarnish those who suffer, make fun of them, call them names, or we could help them, tell them they're not alone. It's entirely up to you. Until we meet next time, stay kind, stay safe, stay crazy, and stay Desi.